Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of our conversation on convertible debt. In this episode, we are going to explain the FASB's recently issued proposed ASU on induced conversions of convertible debt instruments in detail and highlight some of the questions that might still remain even if the ASU does become effective. At the end, we'll give some practical advice on how you might start thinking about this proposed guidance within your organization. If you didn't catch part one, we basically had a plain English you know, discussion, conversation of convertible debt. We explain what a convertible debt instrument is, how they work in practice, why companies issue convertible debt instruments. And then we also talked about the accounting for when these are settled. And the fact that there's really three different accounting models that might need to be applied at settlement. And these can result in drastically different outcomes, even for transactions that are economically similar. Plus I compared the whole thing to basically being the accounting version of a kid's transformer toy. So we definitely had a good time with the conversation. So I'd highly encourage everyone to go back and give that a listen. You know, even if you are a debt equity expert, because first having that background information will really help with understanding the proposed ASU. And second, we explain some of the terminology that's often used to describe these instruments, which, you know, not everyone is likely to be familiar with. All right, Megan, with that, let's welcome you back to the conversation and let's talk about this proposed ASU. First, I'd like to ask you to just frame this issue for us and explain, you know, why the FASB decided to take on this project. Thanks, Nick. As you can imagine with how complex these types of instruments can be, and the fact that there's three different accounting models that you mentioned that could apply to debt conversion, people often struggle with understanding which one to use. So let me back up a little bit here to describe how this issue sort of bubbled up. First, the accounting model for induced conversions was really written only with that traditional convertible debt model in mind. It didn't contemplate induced conversions of these cash convertible instruments. So that would be your instrument C and X. So that's really the first challenge. Second, in 2020, the FASB issued ASU 2020-06, and that eliminated previous accounting model that dealt with cash conversion features, which addressed the accounting for when the cash convertible debt was settled. So with that old model now being gone, entities are allowed to apply your traditional conversion accounting, regardless of the form of consideration used to settle the debt, but only if it was settled in accordance with the original terms. However, if a cash convertible instrument was settled with the terms different from the original terms, the guidance is not clear in certain circumstances on whether entities are required to apply induced conversion accounting or instead if they have to apply debt extinguishment. So again, with the elimination of this cash conversion accounting model, there's more significant accounting differences for an instrument X or C, as you alluded to. So really that's kind of where the crux of this started. And this is obviously putting a lot more focus on how to appropriately interpret what an instrument is in the scope of inducement account. Okay. So sounds like we had some guidance issued, you know, back in the day that really was only intended for traditional convertible debt. But then like all things in this space tend to do, the instruments themselves evolved over time, became more complicated. And, you know, the guidance hadn't necessarily kept up. And then on top of that, we eliminated the one accounting model we had to help us deal with cash conversion features. And so now people were basically left trying to apply some guidance that maybe wasn't fit for purpose. Is that a fair recap? That's right. 
as you can imagine, this has led to a number of questions from practice about when an entity applies induced conversion accounting and when it applies that extinguishment accounting. So, for example, can you have an induced conversion if equity is not issued at all, like in your instrument X, where the holder could receive the entire if converted value in cash? Or what about if the holder was entitled to partial cash and partial shares, and instead they only receive shares on conversion? Or could it be an induced conversion as long as they receive the value of the shares they were entitled to under the original terms? So in addition to these questions, there were interpretation challenges coming up in practice. Now, relating to some of the recent modifications entities were making to these cash convertible instruments to entice conversion. So for example, settlement terms were changed to require evaluation of shares based on a weighted average share price over a period of time. And often that weighted average period goes past the date in which modified terms were agreed upon by both parties. So in those cases, the holder could receive less cash or fewer shares than if the debt instrument had been settled under its original terms. So there were also a lot of questions about how and as of what date do you evaluate if an inducement occurred. And lastly, it was observed that under current GAAP, it's not clear whether the guidance on induced conversions can be applied to the settlement of a convertible debt instrument that's not actually currently convertible under its original terms. So these issues, along with the related scenarios, were brought to the EITF, who reached a consensus on certain amendments that should be made to the codification to update the guidance, which was then ratified by the FASB. It sounds pretty complicated. On top of uh, <laughs> an already complicated like debt instrument itself that we're dealing with, the accounting for it was also equally as complicated. Sometimes I think the most challenging part of accounting for something is just figuring out what scope you're in, right? So. Sounds like that was front and center for why the FASB and EITF decided to address this. All right, let's talk about what they came up with. What did they propose as a solution to help preparers with all of those challenges you just mentioned? So the board decided to pursue what they are referring to as a pre-existing contract approach to determine whether an entity would apply induced conversion accounting. So under this approach, in order to apply induced conversion accounting, that inducement offer that the entity offers the holder is required to preserve the form and amount of consideration issuable under the original conversion privileges of that instrument. All right. Can I just interject real quick? Can you explain that with an example or just in plain English? What do they mean by preserve the form and amount of consideration issuable under the conversion privileges provided in the terms of the instrument? That's quite the mouthful. For a plain vanilla or your traditional convertible instrument, Applying that guidance is probably more pretty straightforward. So if a holder of a convertible debt instrument was entitled to say 50 shares upon conversion and the entity offered to reduce the conversion price such that they would then get 100 shares, you know, this would be an induced conversion assuming all other criteria is met as long as that holder gets at least their 50 shares they were originally entitled to. So the form, you know, i.e. the shares and the amount are in line with those original terms. But then, you know, for instrument C and X, the holder could be entitled to cash and shares. So for example, if you have instrument C, the holder generally will be entitled to the principal value of the debt in cash, and then that incremental conversion value or your conversion spread in shares. So as long as the holder gets the minimum cash and shares they were entitled to under the original terms, plus that kicker to induce them, then this would be, you know, considered to preserve the form and amount of consideration. Okay, so you basically you're looking at what did my original convertible debt instruments say in terms of what the holder investor would receive once they converted, right? 
And then you look at what was offered to them in this inducement and see if it was the same type of consideration and the amount as those original terms. And then you go through that to figure out if you can use induced conversion accounting for these cash convertible instruments. That's right. I think you're catching on, Nick. All right. I'm getting there, Megan, slowly but surely. Those examples are super helpful, at least for me, hopefully our listeners as well. What did they come up with for those other issues you talked about? You know, like the timing of when you go through and assess whether there's been an inducement or this whole weighted average share price thing. And then what happens if you convert or settle a debt instrument that wasn't convertible? You know, did they also address those issues? They did, thankfully. So in terms of timing of when you evaluate whether you have an inducement, the board clarified that you would perform this assessment when the inducement offer was accepted by the holder. Okay. Uh, and that's because it, it aligns with the date we use to measure the inducement expense. And, you know, presumably is the value that caused the holder to convert under those offer terms. Makes sense. So then in terms of the settlement, when it involves a weighted average valuation of the shares, which we often refer to as a VWAP formula, the board decided that the addition, elimination, or modification of a VWAP formula would not automatically cause a settlement to be accounted for as an extinguishment. You know, instead, an entity would assess whether the form and amount of consideration are preserved using the fair value of the shares as of the offer acceptance date. There, it's clarifying, again, looking at the value as of the offer acceptance date. And then the board also clarified that induced conversion accounting can be applied to convertible debt that is not currently convertible under its original terms. And then also, the board clarified that if an instrument was modified within one year of the inducement date, prior to the inducement date, that that entity would look back to the original conversion privileges prior to that modification to determine if the inducement criteria is met. And this is consistent with other existing guidance in AST 47050 relating to evaluating modifications versus extinguishments when debt has been modified within the last 12 months. Okay, thanks for that. So it sounds like they did try to address a lot of these practice issues that had bubbled up, which is obviously good news for preparers. So did they say the FASB comment in the proposed ASU on when these new rules would be effective? And did they provide any guidance on how one would transition from their old accounting to this new model? So the effective date and whether early adoption will be permitted will be determined after stakeholder feedback is received on the proposed ASU to be determined on that part. But the proposed ASU permits entities to apply the new guidance on either a prospective or retrospective basis. So under a prospective approach, an entity would apply the amendments to settlements of convertible debt that occur after the effective date of the updated guidance. Or if an entity applies a retrospective approach, it would recast prior periods and recognize, you know, a cumulative effect adjustment as of the later of the earliest period presented or the date the entity adopted ASU 2020-06. Thank you, Megan. Really appreciate you taking us through the ASU. That was great. I mean, it definitely sounds like preparers are going to be getting some much-needed help in this area, which is obviously a really great thing. But, you know, even with all of those items you mentioned being addressed within the proposed ASU, in my experience, I'm going to go out and guess that there are still likely to be some unanswered questions as well. So, Patrick, let me come back to you and see if my hunch is correct. You know, are we looking at a potential situation where even if this ASU becomes effective, there will still be some lingering questions in practice? Great question, Nick. I think if you strive for perfection, you will be looking for a long time. 
in I think one thing when I read the proposed ASU, one thing that popped out at me is what happens if an issuer just goes into a market and purchases an instrument X and just pays all cash for it? Is that within the scope of this literature? I think there'll be other similar questions and application and discussions during the FASB open comment period, but that one jumps out at me. Okay. So good to know. Maybe something for folks to consider in the comment period on the proposed ASU. James, let me bring you back in and then we'll close out the podcast with this. I like to try to give our listeners some practical advice, especially anytime we've got a new rule coming out that people are going to have to implement, you know, within the organization. So I'll just ask a very open-ended question. Is there any practical advice you would give to our listeners that might have these types of debt instruments that, you know, should be evaluating this new guidance? I mean, at the end of the day, for me, from my experience with clients is like, now that you're aware that these issues are out there, I mean, talk to your accounting advisors and auditors if you're looking to settle this type of debt early, because you might be surprised with what the accounting treatment might be. I mean, especially over the past few years, a lot of the management of companies we've chatted with, they've just looked to basically repurchasing their debt based on the trading price, whether that was an open market repurchase like Patrick was alluding to, or if it was a discrete negotiated transaction with those note holders. I mean, they're looking at it economically saying, here's the trading price, I'll buy this back at the trading price plus a sweetener or premium amount. And I think that I have all the economics figured out. But then when they hear about the accounting implications and how that might run through their financials, they're definitely surprised by that. That's great advice that you could apply to pretty much any transaction, right? Be prepared, get in front of it early and communicate with your auditors and advisors so there's no surprises on the back end. So thank you, James. We'll close out with that. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Megan. Really appreciate all of your guys' insights and taking the time to walk us through this. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMGFRV.